Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, thank you for joining us today on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We are truly blessed that you've signed on. My name is John Russin. I serve as the host, and I'm here with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. How are you today, my friend? We are doing very well, John. Uh, how about you, sir? I am well. We have begun our annual exodus away from southern Arizona. We'll eventually wind our way up to Maine, our camp in the northeast, and hopefully get back home again in October. So this is definitely... Mm-hmm. An escape of the heat. I guess we're not snowbirds, we're sunbirds, if I can coin that phrase, (laughs) getting away. I've always talked about, you know, that come June and July and August, you can't see hell from Southern Arizona, but boy, sometimes you can catch a glimpse of the flames. It's uh, pretty toasty (laughs) down there. But friends, if you've joined us for the first time, you've caught Frank and me in the middle of our current series. Uh, We're discussing our way very casually through St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians, arguably the best epistle for highlighting the sufficiency and the preeminence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we began the last couple of episodes by talking about the introduction and Paul's prayer for these Colossian saints. And Frank, I want to spend just a moment in review talking about the compassionate heart of Apostle Paul. Now, remember, he was a prisoner when he first heard about them, and he hears their story, and he begins to pray for them. Now, I'll be honest, my friend, if I were a prison, I think the last thing I'd think about would be somebody else outside of prison. (laughs) I would be Mm -hmm. busy praying for my own release, but our big brother Paul, He hears about their struggles in prison and what a compassionate heart. He doesn't just say, oh, that's so sad. He spreads his wings of compassion to include these total strangers. And not only does he pray for them, but he writes them a letter. Wow, man, that just really touched me, Frank. And he listened to their story deep enough to really care about them and their struggles. So he's got a true heart for their struggles. He's got a heart for the suffering, their circumstances, and he wants to pour himself into these believers. So that's kind of the framework of where we left our conversation last time. But I want to ask you a question, Frank, as we begin this. Many of us, when we get together for a prayer meeting, we will develop kind of a laundry list, a grocery list of things we want, things we need, things we don't like. But that's really not how Paul approaches this, is it? He approaches this prayer with this. He asks that they'd be filled with the fullness of the knowledge of God. That's first and foremost above all they might need. Frank, why is it so important that the first need we truly have, no matter which need we have, is to be totally filled with the knowledge of God. Why is that critical? 
Oh, John, I think it goes back to the nature of God and the glory of our own creation. And what I mean by that is when we look at God, his first self-revelation in Genesis 1.26 is that he is an us. He said, let us make man in our image. So within God, there is this eternal, infinite, intimate love relationship. And so when he made us in his image, he made us to share in that intimate, eternal, powerful relationship of love. And then when man left God for another God to become his own God, he left that relationship. And so God made a promise in Genesis 3 to restore us. But you know, John, a promise is only as good as the character, the one making the promise. I've had a lot of broken promises. I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. So God went further, even though his character is enough to guarantee the promise. He went beyond and he made what was called a covenant. It's a protected promise established in blood. And I think the issue here, John, is in proper, excuse me, Psalm 25. This is what he said. He said, the secret of the Lord is for those that fear him. The idea, honor him, and he will share with them his covenant. And so that word secret is the word shared between friends. So what this really is, is the idea of the knowing of God. And when that word is used in the Old Testament, you know, (laughs) no pun intended, that that was the word used in the Hebrew for sexual intimacy. And so what God is saying is, I want you to intimately know me. I want you to experience me. And that's the thing that all of us have missed out on in our time as unbelievers. And it's also, John, the thing that I don't know we ever fully come to grips with is the idea of intimately knowing God. If I can just say two more things. It's fascinating that in Hosea 4, 6, we all know that verse. We use it all the time. Without knowledge, my people are destroyed. But that word is not the knowledge of facts. It is the knowledge of intimacy. It's that word again of sexual union. He says, without you fully understanding the intimate love that I have for you, you're going to suffer difficulty in this world, destruction, because you're going to walk through life not getting what life is all about. And so that's why Paul says, I haven't arrived yet. I press on that I might, and there it is again, know him. So, John, I think what Paul is after is you've now gotten the most incredible thing in the universe by faith. You've got a relationship with God. But now I pray that you'd understand what it is you have. Because only in understanding what you really have, the who you really have, only in knowing God will you fully walk with a true understanding of what life is all about. Amen. And what I've found over the years, Frank, is that when we see that as a priority, in our own lives, there's an amazing change in our perspective. 
because we begin to have just a depth of concern and compassion for those father brings across our path, not only for their needs and their circumstances, but for them to know their father as much as he wants them to know them. And we begin to work. That's why we do this ministry so that people will begin to pursue that intimacy with their father, like they've never done it before. So the natural fruit of that is Paul's in prison. And he hears about these believers. He goes, oh, they've really touched my heart. Wow. I have got to write them this letter and let them know first the supremacy of the Savior and pour into them what I know about pursuing intimacy with their father. And then we'll get around to the other things. But first and foremost is that relationship. Oh, my friend, you've said it so well. I could just add one other thought, you know, that's where, you know, we've said for years that our ministry is really about evangelizing Christians. Paul is saying here, you have, but I pray you know what you have. Yeah. You know, it's like if we put a million dollars in your bank account, but we never tell you, you, it's yours. But how can you live from it if you don't know you have it? And so this was Paul's great concern that our eyes would be opened to the glory of what it means to have God, this is mind-boggling, John, but the living God as your friend, yeah. as, as the one who will supply you with his own life and love so that you could then give away his life and love. So it's, it's, it's always Paul's prayer that as Christians, we'd get it. <laughs> you know, we'd, yeah. we'd understand what, that this thing is all about knowing God and living from God. Yeah. And as we dive a little further into this prayer, Frank, we see Paul do as he always does so well. While he prays for them, he's teaching them. And this is what he says. I'm starting now in verse 12 of chapter one. He says, I give thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Now that word qualified, mm. uh, I don't speak Greek. So I looked it up and it means exactly what you think it means. It means to be made totally and completely sufficient, fully equipped for every task and duty that we come across. Wow. What an incredible thing he's done for us. By qualifying us, you know, I don't know about you, Frank, but I have heard so many people adopt what I call the Psalm 22 worm philosophy. I am but a worm. And they have this awful view of themselves. But Paul says plainly, hey, you are qualified to share in the inheritance. My goodness, uh, a, a right view of ourselves as believers is absolutely critical. It's the first step and really understanding the intimacy that our father wants us to have with him, isn't it? Yeah, John, I think within every one of us, there's this thought, do I measure up? Do I have value? Do I have significance? And, you know, it's, it's the natural thing to ask in a fallen world, and especially as an unbeliever, because the Bible uses a term called lost. We know that we're not where we should be. We're not who we are. But then we can be found by Christ. And when we are found, 
I love the way Second Corinthians 3, Paul put it. He says, there's nothing in us that's adequate as coming from ourselves, but there's that key word. Oh, yeah. Our adequacy is from God, and he has made us adequate. He's made us capable. He, you know, there was a movement years ago when you and I were younger, the I'm okay, you're okay movement. Oh, yes. <laughs> you remember that? I'm okay, you're okay. But it was, it had no foundation. It was human. It was all of man. I'll treat you as you're okay if you'll treat me as I'm okay. It was conditional. It was performance. But God is the original author of I'm okay, you're okay. He is perfect. He's more than okay. And in the finished work of Christ, he made us yeah. more than okay. Yes, yeah, so are we. We are yeah. we are okayer than we ever <laughs> could be. And you know, Frank, when I think about being qualified, the first thought comes into my mind is, you know, I've got a grandson who's studying karate. And when he passes a certain test, he's, he's qualified to wear a different color belt. Mm. Or if you go through military training, you get you qualify for snipers or all these other different things. And so qualification in the minds of most people is to be able to do something, to accomplish mm. something. But that's not here, my friend. Here, mm. we are qualified to share in the inheritance. So our qualification is that we are now able to fully receive as heirs, not earning it, but receiving it because we're a child. Mm. Uh, so when I see that, I think, wow, I don't have to work. I just have to open my arms and trust my father to give me what he wants to give me as his child and my inheritance. My goodness, what an incredible position we have as his kids, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the verse that popped in my mind, John, was the verse out of Romans 8, when you were talking that we are joint heirs with Christ. Uh, whatever Christ possesses in his father's kingdom, we now possess. That's a mind-boggling thought. <laughs> I know, it's, it's amazing. And when I look a little further at this, okay, we get to share in the inheritance, Frank, but what exactly is that? Well, it's the inheritance of the saints in light. And when I think about the saints in light, my mind goes to 2 Corinthians 4. And this verse is there in uh, verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the inheritance is to know God, to mm. see his glory, to stand in the face of Jesus and go, wow, mm. I never knew how cool you were and how awesome you have made me. My goodness, Frank, what an incredible inheritance. It really is. It's, it's God himself. You know, I look at, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, which is mind boggling. But when you were talking, the verse that pops in my head is Ephesians 1, you know, 13 and 14, where he says the Holy Spirit is the down payment yeah. of our inheritance. And, you know, I meditate on that. The Holy Spirit is God. So how can God be a down payment of more to come when you've already got God who's everything? And, you know, John, the only way I can answer that is that there's always going to be more God than we can lay hold of. So it's an, it's an infinite knowing 
that we'll never experientially know. So it's an eternity of being wowed and overwhelmed uh, by the awe and wonder that I'm in an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Yeah. It's, it's, wow. it's stunning. Absolutely yeah. stunning. Yeah. And there, there's a, there's a tangible benefit in this life, Frank, from, from this inheritance. He continues on in that same verse. And he says uh, that that inheritance tangible benefit is it's a deliverance, Frank. And he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So delivered us. Okay, that's not like an Amazon package. This is a rescue. We were trapped under the power and authority of another kingdom, another domain. And it's a domain of darkness, not shadow, not not seeing well, but total darkness, total inability to see anything related to the father. And he has reached down and pulled us up from that kingdom and transplanted us into a totally different kingdom. So we have been taken from darkness, from total blackness into light. My goodness, talk about security of the believer. He doesn't let us go back. We are permanently transferred. That's what that word transfer means. It's used in the Greek to describe a permanent separation, like a death. So this is a permanent and binding relocation into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we change citizenships, don't we, Frank? That's a great word to use to describe this. It's not like we have a green card. <laughs> we actually became citizens of another kingdom. There's so many different ways that God speaks about this. He talks about becoming his child, adopted into his family. He, he tries multiple ways. We were slaves, but now we're free. Pictured with the nation of Israel coming out of the bondage of Egypt and going into the land of promise and rest. It's almost like this is so unfathomable that God has to use as many ways and means at his disposal to try to get it into our head, the permanent deliverance that is ours from darkness and sin and bondage into light and glory and freedom uh, forever as it's it's very hard for us to lay hold of the idea that we don't have to do something to try to accomplish this, but that it's already been accomplished. And we simply lay hold of it by faith and we'll walk it out as we believe that it's true, even though it sounds too good to be true. Indeed, it does sound too good to be true. And you know, we're not talking about spiritual warfare in this particular conversation. But when I think about the way that television and Hollywood portrays the so-called alleged conflict between the devil and, and God, and it's, it's always a battle and, and losses are suffered on each side, and, but that's not the way it is at all. The enemy's defeated and we are totally rescued. It's like we suddenly were transported from one kingdom into the next and wow, here we are. And the only way we ever can have contact with that other kingdom 
is if we go back and try to pursue it and stick our nose in where we're not citizens anymore. So it truly is a secure uh, relationship that we have with our father. And it gets so secure, Frank, because as we continue on in this passage, we have redemption. And this is apolytrosis. You know this word because you've talked about it before. Uh, It's a total liberation by paying a ransom. And that redemption gives us the forgiveness of sins. My goodness, what an ultimate package we have, redemption and forgiveness. Talk to us, Frank, a bit about redemption and forgiveness and why they go hand in hand in this passage. You know, John, it's almost like ever since the sin of Adam, we've been on the auction block. And is there anyone out there who will see our plight? Is there anyone out there who will care for us, love us? I think probably the greatest question we could ask is, is there anyone out there that would fight for us? Are we worthy of being fought for? And this is the great glory of what Christianity is all about, is that it's not that we have to stir up or accomplish a worthiness that would make someone fight for us. It's simply that God himself set his eyes on us and said, what you're going through is not the end of the story. I love you and I will buy you back. I will pay the price. I will offer my blood. And I love this. You know, it's what first Peter calls the immeasurable worth of the blood of Christ. It's beyond acquiring how valuable it is, rich beyond measure. And it was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And John, you know, what I love about this is it doesn't say past sins. It doesn't say some sins. It's just a blanket statement. The forgiveness of sins. It's done. All of the past, present, future, gone. Just like John the Baptist prophesied, he came to take away our sin. As the old book prophesied, as far as the East is from the West, infinitely set apart from us forever and ever. Yeah. It it certainly is. And you know, Frank, you and I have talked about this many times in the past and we've run across it a lot over the years to believers who truly believe that they're saved, that they're redeemed, but they can lose their salvation. I don't know how they handle a passage such as this, because it says if we're transplanted into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we are, we have redemption. Redemption and forgiveness go hand in hand. Have means to hold, to possess. It's your property. It's not a future promise. It's not a conditional thing. If you continue to walk the line, it's not a tentative forgiveness or a tentative redemption that depends upon us remembering to confess our sins. We have it today. As you said, forgiveness for past, present, 
and future sins, even the ones we haven't even thought about committing yet. They're all on the cross. They're all forgiven. We have been stamped, redeemed, and so we have been given the righteousness of Christ. Frank, where do people get that confusion about being able to lose their salvation if they outsin the blood of Jesus? And that's my phrase, the outsinning part. Where does that come from? Well, you know, I think within all of mankind, there is a sense that is tied to that lie of we shall be as God, that somehow we're supposed to redeem ourselves. We are to play a part in this. But, you know, we're never going to be fully delivered from that, John, until we really believe what the scripture teaches. And that is from Colossians 2.13, we were dead in our sins. And this isn't an issue of getting ourselves moral. A dead man can't make himself moral. In fact, there's nothing a dead man can do. We've got to believe what the scripture says. We're dead. We need life. And so I think within us, there's that idea that we have to do something. And then we add to it a perversion of one single verse in the New Testament from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Oh, yes. I, have, says, <laughs> I actually have that in my notes to take you there. So I'm glad yeah. you jumped ahead. <laughs> Where if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And these unfortunate Bible teachers have taken that verse out of its context and made it a uh, binding arrangement between us and God that we have to confess our sins in order to be forgiven. And how do you say that when Colossians 2.13 says we have been forgiven of all our sins? If we've been forgiven of all our sins, then asking forgiveness for our sins, and I hope our listeners hear this, would be a declaration of unbelief. If we have to ask for forgiveness in order to be forgiven, we are confessing an unbelief in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. We're saying we really don't believe that we've been forgiven. We're really denying Hebrews 10 that he has perfected us forever. Well, you say, where did 1 John 1, 9 come from then? Well, put it in this context. In the context, we got people who were in the church who were saying they didn't have sin. It was the early forms of Gnosticism. And John, all he did was use a collective we. And he said, if we say we have no sin, we are liars. You're not really a believer. But if we would simply confess our sin, we would be forgiven. So he's not talking to a believer there, John. He's talking to someone in the church who never became a believer. And they need to recognize their sinfulness confess it and come to Christ. And then Colossians 2.13 would be true of them, just like it's true of everyone who's put their faith in Christ. Their forgiveness would be in total. They would have been forgiven of all their sins. That's right. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, Frank, my mind goes back to a fundamental identity issue that we see so often in the church that believers don't know who they are. Sometimes you'll hear them say, well, I'm just a sinner who's saved by grace. I'm not a saint who sins. 
My identity is a sinner. And yes, God saved me, but somehow I carry forward that identity. Now, we're not here to talk about Galatians and crucifixion and Romans and what have you. But the point I'm trying to get to is that if believers continue to confess that they are sinners, not by action, but by identity, what they're really testifying to, Frank, is that they're still in the kingdom of darkness. Mm. No, that's not true. And if, and if they still believe they've got to confess their sins or they won't be forgiven, then we're, they're turning their back on, how do I say it? I don't know, the hallmark of the son's kingdom, forgiveness once and for all. They're basically shaking their fist in the face of Messiah and saying, no, I'm still a sinner despite what you say, and I still have to walk in fear to make sure I confess everything despite what you say. And as a result, my friend, they live their lives not nearly as fruitful as their father wants them to be. And you and I have seen that a lot over the years, haven't we? Yeah, John, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. They're so busy looking at what they've done, they don't see what God has done. I, I remember this one woman in my office and she was just, oh, I'm such a wretch. I'm so sinful. I'm so wicked. And I looked at her and I said, how long have you had this pride problem? And she looked at me dumbfounded and she said, pride? What do you mean pride? I just told you how wicked and stupid and foolish and sinful I am. And I said, yeah, pride. You're so busy looking at you do that you can't see what God has done. And I'll never forget it, John. She looked at me and she said, oh, I'm so prideful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's a sneaky pride, but it blinds us to the reality of what Jesus has done. And you know, a second thought, John, I think we get helped along in that by the enemy. We know that he's the accuser. We know that he's the liar. We know that he seeks to be the destroyer. And so he sees our sin and he serves it up to us. It's, it's really wicked. You know, he tempts us to do things and then he beats us up for doing them. It's a great game plan, man. It works. Oh, gosh. Yes, it is. He'll say things like, you know, you really wouldn't be a child of God if you did that. Or God surely will never love you after what you've done. And you must not be saved. And you're going to have to ask for forgiveness. And so it's an easy step into that realm. We have a dear friend who's now with the Lord, uh, Juan Carlos Ortiz. And he said, you know, he said, uh, God completely tore up the list of every sin we've ever committed at the cross. He said, the problem is the enemy made Xerox copies and serves <laughs> them up to us. <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. And he's got such a willing audience because we still struggle with that same issue that we've had way back in Genesis 3, you know, the lie of the garden, that we have to be as God. And so yeah. even in those of us who know the truth, there is a, a sometime a constant wrestle with choosing purposely not to believe the lies about ourselves, but to believe the truth that we are totally forgiven, totally redeemed, totally set aside as 
our father's kids and heirs, period. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness, rooted and planted in the kingdom of the sun. Wow. I mean, how much more plainly can you say it? We are secure beyond secure, aren't we? That's why Jesus said it's finished. Yeah. It is finished. It is finished. That's right. That's about us for the day. We're running out of time. What final thoughts do you have for us? I think I interrupted you while you're talking about it is finished. So why don't don't you jump on that? My final thought would be in the Greek, that means it's finished. (laughs) I appreciate that. Oh, you know, it's good to have fun sometimes. Friends, thank you for joining us in the middle of our just casual conversation about the epistle to the Colossians. Thanks for joining us. We're really glad that you've been here. And if we have talked about anything that prompts your interest or wants you to to learn more about us, please visit our website. You can find us at OurResoluteHope.com. We're in the process of reconstructing the site, so hopefully by the time you hear this, it'll be done. Please check out there. There's a bunch of books there, including our two latest books, The Lonely Path of Pain by Frank and a, a new children's book, I Was Wrong, But God Made Me Right. You'll also find there a bunch of free eBooks, newsletters, some devotional thoughts, etc., all centered on the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and our very life. Also, if you're there, please pop us an email. Sign up to get our newsletters. Let us hear from you. We'd love to, to pray for you any way that we can. And of course, follow us on all of our social media platforms. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you hear podcasts. And as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews chapter six. Uh, Frank is getting old after all these months, but it's never getting old that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter calls it a living hope in his first epistle. Uh, We call it a resolute hope, a steadfast, immovable hope. Our hope is Jesus. So today and always choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.